Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we are going to tackle part one of a two-part series about alternative fuels. Yes, uh, we could technically do like a seven-part series on this, but we decided to kind of condense it the way that you would perhaps a natural gas or... Nice. Yeah, yeah. hey, look at that. Yeah. You're not the only one who can pun Make puns. really yes. weakly. We are compressing these subjects into two uh, parts. The first part is going to be kind of an overview of the different alternatives that we think of with alternative fuel, keeping in mind that you know the ones that we're talking about today are the major players and that there could be an alternative fuel right around the corner that is completely different from the ones we're chatting about now. Uh, you know, that's a possibility. But these Certainly, are the, yeah. these, these are the ones that are, are currently in some form of production and use in various places around the world. It also will behoove us to mention the fact that Lauren and I come from the United States of America. Oh, that is where we live. That is our frame of reference. Um, and a lot of the information available to us immediately uh, centered around that kind of experience. So we know more about the, the laws, the prices, and the uh, general uh, availability. Exactly. Right, right. What's the infrastructure status in the U.S.? Now, keep in mind that some of these alternative fuels have a lot of support in other nations around the world. Uh, some nations have, have uh, invested a great deal in, say, propane, for example, as a possible fuel source. And we're really talking about fuel for the most part as vehicle fuel and specifically vehicle fuel for you guys as in yes. consumers. Yes, we will mention a couple of places where um, some of these fuels have been used uh, uh, commercially or in uh, government fleet vehicles. Right. Or in industrial vehicles that are used in factories or, or construction yards or whatever. But for the most part, we're really looking at this is the alternative to the stuff what you put in your gas tank or diesel tank, as the case may be. Or hydrogen fuel cell or et cetera, et yeah, cetera. Yeah. So, um, so th- you can look at these in lots of different ways. You can divide them up into all sorts of different categories. And so uh, we kind of arbitrarily made these into our own categories based upon my whim. <laughs> not, not completely arbitrary. Uh, we're uh, first going to cover, I think, biodiesel and ethanol. Yeah. And, and the idea here is that these are two fuels that we get uh, from uh, organic sources, and then we process it to make it into fuel. Also, these two different fuels, they, they are different. Ethanol and biodiesel are not the same thing. Uh, these two fuels also, besides requiring some processing, have some other stuff in common. For instance, both of them you will frequently see in blended form, meaning that we actually blend these with petroleum-based fuels. In the case of ethanol, we're talking gasoline, and with biodiesel, we're talking... Diesel. Yeah. But anyway, in both cases, we're talking about mixing uh, this, this biologically uh, 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 created fuel with stuff that is petroleum-based. Keeping in mind, of course, if we want to go all the way back, even petroleum-based stuff was organic at one point. But sure, sure. But there's but there's a difference between uh between man-made, processed organics and stuff that took millions and millions and millions of years to form the way it did. Right. Yeah. There's a tiny difference there. <laughs> uh, so so let's let's start with um well let's start with ethanol. I think because that one is probably the one that that 
a lot of people who may not be aware of it are using already. Uh, right. Um, I think that in American, most places in America use a blend of uh, 90% gasoline to about 10% ethanol. Yeah, it's called E10. That's the, the general term for that blend, uh, or gasohol. That's also what it's often referred to. Although. Which sounds so goofy. And yeah. it's, 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 I've seen it increasing, uh, or rather I should say there's a decreasing trend to call it that. I think it almost has a stigma against it because people realize that, uh, uh, ethanol, which by the way is ethyl alcohol. You know, that's, it's just another name for ethyl alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, that ethyl alcohol could be pretty hard on some, uh, engine parts, depending upon what, you know, what your engine had in it, uh, like various tubes and connectors and things like that. Oh, right. So, it, it is a solvent. So, um, so one of the problems in using some of the higher blends in, in normal engines is that it can, um, it, a start start knocking some some extra stuff loose, right? Um, and clogging fuel filters that way. Yeah. And uh, B can start um, eating away at some of the rubber components, uh, fuel lines, and stuff exactly, like that. exactly. And so it, what, what's kind of funny is that when it's eating away at that that stuff that's built up in an engine, let's say that you've been using uh, regular gasoline in an engine for a while, but the engine can also accept ethanol of various blends, like even a even a high concentration of of a uh, um, ethanol to actual gasoline. Well, the ni- nice thing is that it's actually going to start cleaning your system. But the problem yeah. is all that stuff that's built up has to go somewhere. And that's when you get into that problem of it clogging up filters and things like that. Oh, right. Uh, which is why should you should you have a vehicle that can accept both and you start using higher blends of ethanol, um, it's recommended to replace your fuel pumps with something that is more capable of dealing with that. Right, right. And then once you've got everything, you know, cleaned out that first run through, just have a, a basic uh, a maintenance and replacement schedule, just as you would your normal vehicle, the way most of us ignore. Uh, and uh, I say that because I know a lot of car owners and I think regular maintenance is something that just happens to other people. Uh, no. I've been I've been that guy once or twice. I I, uh, I take the train. So what do I know? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so it's it's very common in the United States. Uh, uh, in fact, I think something like 95 percent of uh, gas stations have used some blend of ethanol. And part of the reason for that is that uh, ethanol will increase the octane of your gasoline. Now, octane is this this rating that we think of that can actually reduce what we call engine knocking. So if you've ever been in an old car running on uh, you know, a low-octane uh, gasoline and you start hearing this weird knocking noise coming out of the engine, that's that's from this, this octane issue. Adding an ethanol increases the octane. What it also does, however, is it, it lowers the actual energy content of the gasoline because ethanol does not have as much potential energy stored in it as gasoline does. Uh, right, which in all practicality means that gallon for gallon, you're going to get less mileage out of ethanol than you will out of gasoline. Right, and the less mileage all depends upon that blend, right? Right. Like, so if it's an E10 blend where you've got the 10% ethanol and 90% gasoline, you you might get three to four percent fewer miles per gallon than you would if you were using just regular gasoline. If you were using E85, which is kind of the, the flip side of that, it's 85 percent ethanol and 15 percent gasoline. This is something that flexible fuel vehicles or FFVs, as we call them in the biz, uh, can use. Then you're talking about a, a significant drop in miles per gallon. You're Up talking to about, 25 to 30 percent. Right. That's a that's 
big, right? I mean, these are why we have these different considerations. And we'll do a full episode about why uh, the there are a lot of challenges to switching to alternative fuels. So I'm not going to really get into it there. But you can kind of already see one of the issues here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does have a lower energy content than gasoline. The cost of ethanol kind of varies uh, in the Midwest, where you've got a lot of places that are actually growing the, the, the feedstocks. That's what we call the stuff what we turn into <laughs> ethanol. Right, right. Uh, starch crops are what are used to ferment and distill um, stuff into ethanol. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, especially that, here that in is, the U.S. That is the stuff, yes. And um, so corn is here in the U.S. is used mostly. In Brazil, I think it's sugarcane, mm-hmm. um, but you can also use wheat, barley, potatoes. Right. The starch-based or sugar-based stuff can be turned into this. You can also use cellulose-based, cellulosic ethanol, which would come from things like wood chips or switchgrass. Uh, now, this stuff has potentially a better return on investment when it comes to energy. There's this thing called EROI, that's Energy Return on Investment. Whenever we're talking about producing any sort of fuel, producing the fuel requires you put energy into the production. And so it's really important that the energy you get out from that potential fuel, like whatever you're going to use that fuel for, the is, energy is, is greater than what you've put in. Right? right. Because otherwise, why are you doing it? Yeah. It's, it, otherwise, it would be an energy sink. Because mm-hmm. let's say let's say that, you know, for the most part, the energy you're going to be getting to produce this stuff is still coming from fossil fuels, because that's what we really depend upon right now. So if you would actually consume more fossil fuel producing this alternative fuel than you would if you had used the fossil fuel to in the first with? place then it's an energy sink and you're playing a losing game. You right. want that energy to be greater. The same the same way that uh, that fusion reactors are not pop- popular yet because they use more energy to start up than they put out. Exactly, yeah. If you've got an energy sink, then really you've just got a thing what goes beep. It's I'm using what a lot in this. I apologize that. I don't know what it was that got into my head. I, I shot a video today, cackled insanely, and then got called on it on Twitter. Lauren. Hey, I, that was not Lauren. That was your humble narrator. That was completely different. Fair enough. Whole separate persona. That's true. You can talk to her. Right. So, uh, but some other things about ethanol, uh, they do, ethanol does tend to put out fewer greenhouse gas emissions than gasoline combustion does, uh, which is, uh, important. You know, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves about moving to an alternative fuel is why are you doing it? Right? Because there are a lot of different potential answers you could give. And if one of those answers is, uh, I'm concerned about the environmental impact of gasoline consumption, then something like this, where you're talking about fewer greenhouse gas emissions, is important. Uh, you know, so that's, that's something to keep in mind. Ethanol, of course, is also produced domestically. That's also important because in the United States, you know, some of our oil, a great deal of our oil, around half of it really, is brought in Imprinted. from- yeah, imported. And some of that's imported from places in the world where... That it would be perhaps uh, better for us to not be supporting economically and politically. Right. The money that we are are putting out could be funding things that could be uh, harmful to either that region's stability or to the United States' uh, stability in general. And so anything you can produce domestically removes that, that uh, or at least reduces that... Uh, issue. So that's another reason why ethanol is considered to be uh, a, a nice alternative is because it's something that we can produce domestically. However, uh, there's also an issue about how much ethanol we produce versus um, how much gasoline we produce. But again, I'll save that for the next show because right. I don't want to spoil everything in this one. 
But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's generally the big picture on ethanol. Uh, now for ethanol, for like things like that E85 blend where you have the 85% ethanol, uh, again, that's something that's only really useful in specific vehicles that have been tooled to accept that as a fuel. So these are called a uh, flexible fuel vehicles. Right, exactly. So you, you don't want to fill up your, your, right off the lot car that normally runs on gasoline with E85 because that's not a good fuel for it. It could eat through those rubber uh, hoses like you were talking about, Lauren. So uh, this is, you know, it's it's one of those things where you're really looking at offsetting gasoline consumption, not completely replacing it. All right. So let's talk about biodiesel, which is the other sort of uh, biological fuel source that we wanted to mention uh, biodiesel of course uh, as the name suggests is not a replacement for gasoline it's more like a substitute for diesel which is again a petroleum based fuel but is different from gasoline so uh, a a gasoline engine will not burn diesel fuel efficiently you have to have a diesel engine to do that right uh now i actually remember when diesel cars were more popular than they are now because that's how old I am. <laughs> I was about to say, I don't remember that at all, Jonathan, and I'm not even making fun of you right now. Yeah, no, I remember it because uh, I was alive in the 70s and I, I saw diesel engine cars, uh, you know, because they're still very common in industrial use in uh, large vehicles like buses or trucks. Uh, but And there are still cars that are diesel engine cars. They're just not as common uh, as right, gasoline right. powered cars. Yeah, a, a lot of, and I did want to mention, a, a lot of um, the changes that have been made to how we consume fossil fuels started out in the 1970s with, um, uh, A, the here in America, the, uh, the Clean Air Act being passed by the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, mm-hmm. and also the Arab oil embargo from 73 to 74, and then the um, Iranian Revolution from 78 to 79. Yeah, we had some uh, major fuel crises in the United States in the 70s, which really started the ball rolling. Uh, things that have kept the ball rolling are everything from the domestic safety issue that I referred to earlier and the environmental issue, as well as just people concerned with trying to find a way that would uh, some sort of fuel that could be less expensive, less volatile in price than gasoline. Uh, right. Because between, say, uh, 78 and 1981, um, the, the cost of, of oil per barrel skyrocketed from $14 to over 35. Well, I remember when I first moved to Atlanta, gasoline was 85 cents a gallon. I, I love watching things like uh, like Die Hard, where suddenly it pans past a gas station and you know that it's that it was before our time because it's like 79 cents a gallon. Yeah. Now it's over you know three dollars a gallon easily in most of the United States. And, and not that we should c- complain about that, because in Europe, it's much, much, much higher. Right. Right. But again. But anyway, sign of the times. So so. Biodiesel is interesting in that this is diesel fuel that's manufactured from vegetable oils, animal fats, and even recycled restaurant grease. Yeah. I remember uh, reading a news report a few years ago, uh, uh, an article in Creative Loafing, which is a, a local uh, weekly paper here in Atlanta. And it was a feature on a guy out in Athens who had uh, had tinkered with his car so that it could accept a form of restaurant grease with minimum amount of processing. So he was actually using biodiesel and kind of the the issues he was running into on the uh, official end, because this was all kind of um, from a tinkerer's perspective, as opposed to this is something that was fully supported by an infrastructure. Right. Uh, but the idea here is that you're using this stuff, this renewable resource, because there's, you know, we can keep growing more vegetables or mm-hmm. animals or 
McDonald's, and then we get the stuff from it, this grease or, or fat or oil, and process it. And in that processing, uh, we then end up with this biodiesel. It's a biodegradable fuel. Uh, it's non-toxic. So less toxic than say table salt, which is great. You know, right. You know, you have a massive biodegrade or biodiesel fuel spill. It is biodegradable. It's non-toxic and it makes the highway smell like French fries. So really, I mean, who loses? Which, which isn't to say that, that a giant oil spill of this stuff would be happy for the environment. It's not going to like moisturize all of the, the seals faces or anything like that, right, but yeah. it just, you know, but, but it's a little bit less scary and easier to clean up. Yeah. Yeah. Than it's, petroleum. It's considered oil. to have a lower environmental impact from that perspective. You, I mean, you still have to have process this stuff. So you still have to put energy into the system just like you do with ethanol. So right. don't, don't think that this takes fossil fuels out entirely. And in fact, just like ethanol, biodiesel is something that is frequently blended with petroleum-based diesel. So there are different blends. Um, there's uh, there's B2, which is only 2% biodiesel and 98% petroleum-based diesel. Uh, B5, which is 5% biodiesel, and B20, which is 20% biodiesel. You can get B100, although I don't think there are any consumer vehicles that no. are... That run on B100, but B100 would be 100% pure biodiesel. Uh, most vehicles in the United States don't go over B5 as the the recommended blend for running in that engine. The engines, the, you know, the, the manufacturers say this engine was not designed to run anything with a greater than B5 blend. For biodiesel to diesel, but uh, but even even those very small concentrations can make a very large uh, difference in the way that the fuel burns. Right. In fact, uh, again, just like with ethanol, the biodiesel has a lower fuel economy than uh, than pure diesel does. So, for example, if you go with B one hundred, it's something like a ten percent lower fuel economy. Right. Which which means that uh, it would take about one point one gallons of biodiesel to equal one gallon of standard. Right. Whereas B20 is more like just a 2% deficit in fuel economy. So uh, obviously when you're getting close to B5 or B2, the change is negligible to the point where you probably wouldn't notice it. Wouldn't notice it, it that much. Yeah. Unless would, you're really min-maxing your, uh, your driving experience. Yeah, and hardly anyone – I mean there are people who do that. Like there, There's some people who go to some pretty – uh, extreme lengths to try and maximize fuel economy. My, my programmer friends sometimes get bored in their uh, hybrid vehicles and do that. It's yeah, really, oh, so they're really and, tracking it. I, mm. I think of the people who are drafting behind massive trucks. That's not a safe thing to do, by the way. No, no. Uh, but it does actually it does affect in, your in fuel economy. Your, yep. But it decreases your life expectancy. <laughs> so uh, now it does, in general, have fewer greenhouse gas and uh, and pollutant emissions than diesel, although there is the possibility of an increase in nitrous oxide emissions. So it's not like this is across the board cleaner than petroleum-based diesel. Right. But uh, for most of the types of, of uh, emissions that we would consider harmful, it's better than the petroleum-based one. It's just not hands down or runaway win. So you can't just point at biodiesel and say, this is this this is the cure for our environmental problems. Right, right. It it does it does reduce um carbon dioxide emissions, but yeah. Right. And that's a big one. I mean, sure. CO2 emissions, that's a big problem. And also, they point out that really the CO2 emissions, the the way that it quote-unquote reduces them in part is because you are um you are creating feedstocks again in order to create the biodiesel, and by creating the feedstocks, you're creating carbon dioxide sinks. 
Right, right. You're offsetting some of that, uh, some of what's going to be burned later. Right, yeah. The stuff that's going to be released in the atmosphere is actually getting pulled in by the stuff that is turning into it is fuel. Growing. Yeah. So in in this case it's it, it's almost deceptive in a way to say lower carbon dioxide emissions because part of that is due to the fact that they're saying, well, yeah, it's lower because look Because we're this, growing stuff. Yeah, this stuff is taking carbon dioxide in. Yeah. <laughs> uh but I mean you have to that's that's one of the other uh, things that we'll be talking about in this podcast is you really have to look at the big picture, there's so many factors involved of of you know how how you create something, how you process it, and how what you ship it, how you ship it. Oh yeah, yeah, and and what it does. Natural gas is going to be big on that one, and yeah. uh, and and what it does to the environment overall. Um, another benefit of biodiesel is that it acts. It, it's another thing that acts as a solvent in your engine, which um which can again create some problems if initially. You, yeah. Initially, if you if you aren't um watching out for your fuel pump and uh, rubber. Rubber bits. Right. And then once uh, once you do get all that cleaned out, all that gunk that's in there, then it's it should run much more cleanly than a, a typical diesel engine would. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, a lot of people point out that this is one of those things that if we can figure out a way to make it work, it's a huge benefit because, it, first of all, you're taking stuff that nobody wants, used restaurant grease. Right. You know, stuff that would... You know, we we already have to figure out a way of disposing of that so it doesn't clog up drains or cause problems. If we can then take what would normally be a waste product and turn it into a fuel product, then that's a win-win in that scenario. Yeah, definitely. Now, once you start looking outside that, that's when you're like, all right, but you have to take these other things into consideration. Well, yeah, you know, both both biodiesel and ethanol can be created from what we would normally be considered as waste crops. Um, you know, e- extra bits that we wouldn't really be using that would either, uh, you know, go into mulch or a landfill or something. Yeah, although the ethanol argument, people get really up in arms about that because if you're talking about growing corn just for fuel and then you take into account other things like starvation issues or, you know, good or effective land use, then that brings up another debate. But again, I think that actually fits in our second episode right. probably a little more. So we'll we'll save that. Uh, we'll we'll get on the soapbox for the second one. We'll spare you that for right now. So that that's the biological stuff. Um, let's see. Do you want to go right into the more fossil fuel oriented ones or do you want to do hydrogen next? Uh, let's, let's do, I've got natural gas next on my paper. All right, so let's do that let's then. Let's do it. So natural gas, we're primarily talking about methane here. Methane is one of those greenhouse gases that you hear about a lot. It actually ha- has the capacity to do uh, far more harm than carbon dioxide, but on a shorter time scale. So, uh, its greenhouse effect is greater than CO2. It does not stay in the atmosphere as long as CO2 does. Right. But um, but that's one of those things that people will point out. But methane is a clear and odorless gas that might surprise you when you think of all the things that methane is said to be generated by. Um, yeah, it on pure methane is it's clear and it's odorless. It's only uh, gets odors from other things that are mixed in with it. Right. Uh, it is normally sold in one of two forms. Uh, either compressed natural gas, where you actually have it in compressed canisters. Mm-hmm. In gas form. Yep. Or liquefied natural gas, which means that... It's really compressed. Yeah, to the point where it's actually liquefied. Uh, now, we all know that, uh, or if we don't, we will soon, that when you compress a gas enough, assuming that you've got the right uh, setup here, you are actually pushing those gas atoms closer and closer together. And if you are in the right conditions, you can then 
eventually get add enough pressure where you can liquefy something. Right. Now, uh, once it is released from that pressure, assuming that the temperature outside of the pressurized compartment is greater than its boiling point, it will then immediately boil off into gas. Uh, we see this with lots of different stuff. So, for example, liquid nitrogen, if it once it's removed from uh, being pressurized, starts to boil off mm-hmm. and it becomes uh, a gaseous nitrogen, uh, which is what, why, you know, you, you see that whenever you see any of those liquid nitrogen uh, demonstrations. You just see this, this you just vapor see this outpouring of. of yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's um, part of this whole process. Well, anyway, methane is one of those that at room temperature is a gas. Uh, it's essentially carbon and four hydrogen atoms. That's your basic building block for methane. And um, it can be uh, used either in vehicles that are dedicated to using natural gas, or it can be used in what is called a uh, a, a dual or bi-fuel vehicle, which means they can use both um, methane or gasoline or diesel, depending upon what the engine is. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, one of the reasons we could look at natural gas as being an alternative fuel is we produce a lot of it in the United States. A lot of nations uh, produce a great deal of natural gas. Uh, yeah, the thing about natural gas is that it occurs um, naturally in association with crude oil. Usually when you um, tap into a, a into a well, you're going to get both crude oil and natural gas. Right. So it's a byproduct in that sense. Uh, so, you, but it's a byproduct that's useful. It's a, you know, it means that you get two things for one process. Oh, right. We only started being able to use it in, I think, about the 1890s, which is when they started figuring out how to uh, to, to basically bottle and transport it right. more it's efficiently. The, the whole process, well, processing natural gas so that you can actually draw it off of everything else and make it into a, a usable fuel. Um, about 94% of the natural gas in the United States is uh, is domestically produced. So only 6% or so is imported from outside the U.S. Other nations produce all the natural gas they want, or some of them have to import quite a bit of it. And mostly in the U.S., we use it for heating and cooking. Uh, there's uh, It's used for electric power production and also in industrial uses. Very little of it is being used in transportation outside of a few notable instances. Like here in Atlanta, we have a public transportation system called MARTA. And a lot of the... MARTA buses and trains? Actually, just I think just just the buses. But yeah, I was about to say trains and I was trying to catch myself. But yeah, the buses uh, on MARTA, for the most part, are natural gas buses. So they are using this as their fuel. Uh, It tends to produce fewer smog-producing pollutants uh, by about 20 to 45 percent, depending upon the vehicle's calibration and the specific type of natural gas you're using, whether it's that compressed natural gas or liquefied natural gas, uh, as well as a few other uh, variables. It also is uh, about, um, well, it, it produces five to nine percent fewer greenhouse gas emissions. So it's cleaner than gasoline, um, although you're still producing greenhouse gases. It's not like it's eliminating them. Oh, right, right. It is still a fossil fuel. So even though it's an alternate, it's... Yeah, and that's another thing to remember. It is a fossil fuel. It, so. It's not It's not a renewable resource the way that, um, that for but, example, ethanol and bio, biodiesel are. Right, exactly. Uh, it does tend to be cheaper than gasoline, so that's good. Uh, it does have lower energy content than gasoline. So just like the other ones we've mentioned, in fact, you're going to see a running theme here where the energy content of the fuel when you when you compare it to a comparable amount of gasoline uh is lower one of um, the many reasons that gasoline became popular in the first place was that it was um 
so, so efficient. Yeah, it had a lot of it had a high energy density compared to other fuels. And, uh, you know, it's another thing to keep in mind is that it's really hard to compare some of these fuels against gasoline because they are in different formats, right? So, oh, right, right. How, how do you how do you compare a gallon of air versus a gallon of yeah, liquid? It's, yeah, you have to look at cubic feet of gas versus a gallon of liquid. It, it, it becomes very difficult to make a meaningful comparison. Same sort of thing will come true in, in hydrogen, but I'll, I'll talk about that when we get there. Oh, right. The, the, the real measure that we can figure out is um, just kind of how many how many miles per gallon you get off of it. And, and even then, you start to be affected by things like the fact that natural gas tanks can be very heavy um, right. and and drag down the efficiency of a vehicle yeah. that they're used in. You might, you might, I think for me, the best measurement I would be able to say is if you had two vehicles that were of comparable weight and design and they were both fully fueled with whatever fuel they had, how far could they get before you had to call mom to come pick you up? And if that number is greater with gasoline, then then you say, all right, well, if you're talking about a fully fueled vehicle, whatever the definition yeah, t- of that tanked, is, whatever kind of tank it is, is filled up. Right. And that and that tank or the, battery, the two exactly yeah, our fuel cell, or- <laughs> the two the two vehicles are of equivalent weight and design because you have to figure the design, too. I mean, if one of them is if they both weigh the same, but one of them is essentially a wall and the yeah. other one is a super sleek car, then obviously that's going to play a part. It's or really if, or if one if one weighs like a Vespa and the other is. A SUV, right, right, yeah. yeah. These are these are this just just shows you how complex this problem is. It really is one of those things where if you look at it just on the surface and you say, "Oh, this has fewer greenhouse gas emissions and uh, and and it's not nearly as many particulates," then this why is the don't one we, we should use do. that? We should use this all the time, no, right. not necessarily. Yeah, and then you look Lots at all factors. the factors. Mm, yeah, it's a complicated problem. I'm glad that this. I'm glad I just get to paid to talk about it as opposed to have to make the decisions. Absolutely. All right. Before the break, we talked about natural gas. Let's talk about another type of fossil fuel, propane, which is also called liquefied petroleum gas. Um, you know, we talked about how natural gas, we, we can find that in the same places that we find oil. Uh, propane is actually something that is truly a byproduct of natural of gas processing. Of the processing, processing of, uh, right. Yeah. Or, or even, uh, of crude oil. So we, we can get it from uh, processing natural gas or crude oil. Propane is uh, is this colorless and odorless uh, fuel, very much uh, you know, just as methane is colorless and odorless. By the way, if you if you're wondering how is this possible, because I know the smell of things like natural gas, that's because uh, odorants are actually mixed in with that that fuel. So because that they're way, so dangerous that if uh, if they weren't, then if you got a leak, it, it, it's a lot easier to scent detect a leak than to die of. Overexposure. Right. Yeah. To... You, you you would want there to be some way of detecting it apart from a spark ends up igniting a huge explosion. Obviously. So by mixing odorants in, it's really just to alert it's us. A safety measure. Yeah, yeah. To its presence. Um. Right. So uh, propane and butane, um, which you know is used in in lighter fluid, um, sure. are both collected during the production of natural gas and, and oil refinery in mm-hmm. order to um, prevent them from condensing and causing processing difficulties. Right. So we can actually use this in other formats as well, other other uses. Yes. So uh, in the United States, for example, propane's used in home and water heating. It's used in cooking. Uh, as a Strickland, I am very well aware of propane and propane accessories. That joke was never funny. And then uh, it's also used in refrigerating and clothes drying and farm and industrial equipment and even in drying corn. 
that's mainly what we use it for here in the United States. 90% of the propane here in the U.S. comes from domestic sources. So again, we've mostly, we produce it ourselves, uh, here in the U.S. and we don't import that much compared to the stuff we produce. Uh, as a fuel, it does have lower carbon dioxide emissions than gasoline. Uh, but it also has a lower energy content. Yeah. So again, if you're, if you're talking about a fully fueled vehicle with propane versus a fully fueled vehicle with gasoline, you may not be able to go as far in the propane vehicle. Uh, it also can emit fewer carbon monoxide and non-methane hydrocarbon emissions. So it's also cleaner in that respect. Uh, it tends to be less expensive than gasoline, although that price can fluctuate over time. In uh, right, right. Even, even over the course of, of a year, especially here in the U.S., where we use it a lot for heating, it can be um, very much more expensive than gasoline in the winter and right. then very much cheaper in the summer. Yep. All depends on on when and where you're you're picking it up, uh, and it's um you know it's it's got a higher octane than gasoline does, but like you said, it has a lower fuel economy, so it does have a trade off, uh, and it's a fossil fuel, you know, just like natural gas is a fossil fuel. So it is technically non renewable, right? So or renewable over the course of billions of years, right? Right. It's it's not renewable on any kind of time frame that does us any good whatsoever. Until we hit that fancy singularity thing that's coming in twenty to forty years, right? And and like like the compressed natural gas, uh, you have to worry about how you're going to actually store this stuff. You know, it's not the same as the liquid gasoline that we can pump into. A, a car. Oh, right, right. Um, it has to be pressurized and. Yeah, compressed essentially. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's usually under, uh, you, when you get a propane, it's usually a propane tank that's under Those a lot of big, compression. big heavy tanks, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so refueling would be an issue just as it would be with some of the other alternatives we talked about. Ethanol and biodiesel are, again, the most like gasoline so that um, They're the most compatible with current um, engine designs, and, uh, pro, and infrastructure, pro, and infrastructure, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So, so in this case, uh, if we were to make a switch to propane, then it would require us to rethink how we package and deliver and and consume this stuff. And how how would you refuel your vehicle? Would it require you to get the assistance of a couple of burly dudes? Probably would for me. I don't have a large lifting capacity, so. Uh, but that, that's kind of the, the lowdown on propane. And now we're going to talk a little bit about one of my favorite elements of all time, which is good because it's also one of the most, it is the most abundant in the universe. Hydrogen. Hi- hydrogen, yes. Uh, hydrogen, of course, is uh, the fuel that we think about when we think about what the sun is doing, where it's taking hydrogen and fusing it into helium. At a temperature, temperature of millions, millions of, of degrees. degrees. Doom, doom. Yeah, I can't, I can't not do that. We've done that before in the podcast. I know. Don't write in and tell us that we did that joke already. We know we did. They we might can't be, help ourselves. They we're, might be giants are awesome. And we're not sorry. No, we're not even a little sorry. So and uh, we'll probably do it again in a future episode. Maybe even in the next one. Who knows? Uh, but at any rate, hydrogen can be used as a fuel in a couple of different ways. You could just burn it in an internal combustion engine. It is. Sure combustible. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were to do that, it would actually produce uh, some nitrous oxide uh, as an as one of the things that would uh, emit a, a pollutant. But another way you could use hydrogen is in a fuel cell. Hydrogen in a fuel cell is a really cool idea. Uh, it's not practical, but at the moment, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, first of all, the, the idea is that with a fuel cell, you've got essentially a membrane. And you have uh, hydrogen on one side of this membrane and oxygen on the other side of the membrane. 
And that membrane allows ions to pass through, but not electrons. So the hydrogen really wants to get over to where the oxygen is. There's a, there's a, a, a catalyst that's on this membrane. Uh, there's an electrolyte on the membrane. It's all going to facilitate this, this chemical reaction that's going to happen. Actually, this, this physical reaction really that happens. So since the hydrogen wants to go and party with the oxygen and the, the electrons are being a total pill about it, they ditch the electrons and then they go right on through that, that, uh, that membrane, membrane which is kind of like the bouncer at a club, right? You know, you want to get in the club, but you brought your, you know, dorky friend who is totally not club material. So your choice is either leave the club or ditch the dorky friend. Hydrogen ditches the dorky electron friend and goes into the club and parties with the oxygen. The electrons are thinking, oh, I'm having none of that. I will get into that club. I'm just using the back door. The back door in this case is going through some form of circuit. And then once it goes through the circuit, it comes to the other side of the fuel cell, rejoins the hydrogen and oxygen, says, didn't get rid of me after all, did you? And then they all have a big water party because at that point you have H2O. Right. Yes. This is called electrochemical conversion. I like my version where it's a club. I I like that better, too. Okay. At any rate, so the output here is really interesting. You get electricity, you get water, and you get heat. Heat is a byproduct as well. So a lot of people have said fuel cells, that's got to be the way to the future, because think about it. You don't have to worry about any greenhouse gas emissions except for water vapor, which is a greenhouse gas, but it can easily be incorporated into the water cycle, um, whereas you know other ones can't. Uh, and the, the idea that it's a, know, it's a contained cell, you're, you're using the same product over and over again. Well, yeah, essentially what happens is you get the water. In, in the fuel cell, and then you have to refuel the fuel cell with more hydrogen. Uh, and then the question is, all right, where do you get the hydrogen? Aha, there's the rub. Because as it turns out, hydrogen, while plentiful, tends to buddy up with just about everything. <laughs> which is, which, which is A, how you get the water, but, but, you know, you can extract hydrogen from water. But you have to expel energy to do that. Mm-hmm. So A the question lot. then is like, is it more efficient for you to free up that hydrogen so that you can get that pure hydrogen you need for the fuel cell? Uh, is the energy that you're pouring in to get the hydrogen more than the benefit you're getting from the fuel cell? If it is, then it's an energy sink, like we talked about at the top of the podcast. And with hydrogen, that tends to be the problem, is that how do you get Lots of pure hydrogen. It doesn't occur that that often here on on Earth. Yeah, not in its unbound form. Mm-hmm. It's almost always bound with something else. So you have to find a way of breaking those molecular bonds to free up that hydrogen. And that that requires you to put forth a little effort, and that's right. that's where the that's where the problem is. Right. I think the other big problem with hydrogen is is a perception concept because you know people think hydrogen and sometimes they think Hindenburg and then they think oh the humanity and yeah and that's and you, you know it's I mean yes yes the Hindenburg um, was filled with hydrogen but but really the problem there was the um, aluminum powder coating and uh, yeah and, and various also, other explosive properties that they weren't really thinking about too hard. Right. It also depends on whether it's an internal combustion engine use of hydrogen or a fuel cell use of hydrogen. Right. But, but it still does have, you know, issues of... The capacity of, to right. yeah, burn so like really how, hot and really fast. How do you store it and how do you make sure it gets to the fuel cell safely or do you just replace fuel cells? Is that the way you refuel your fuel cell vehicle? And if so, do you need to get those burly guys back over at the refueling station? Because, you know, these things get heavy. Remember, uh, you know, when we're talking about a fuel cell, 
that's one unit of what would be a, essentially a huge stack of these things. That would yeah, because if you just if you just plug one in, it's not going to get you very far. But it's if not going to give a whole... you much juice at all. Really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And 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 it would require something like a like a giant steel tank in order to create something sturdy enough, right? To house this kind of so this kind of gas. Now hydrogen, and of course, the heavier you make the vehicle, the more power you need to move the vehicle. So it becomes this kind of this the, you're chasing this constant problem that just shifts where the problem actually is, right? You think, oh, I solved this, but ooh, now this is the issue. Uh, this, this is something engineers struggle with all the time, not just in vehicle design or alternative fuels, but all sorts of applications. Now, hydrogen does contain less energy than gasoline if you're talking about by volume. If you're talking about by weight, hydrogen has the highest energy content of any fuel. But here's the thing. Hydrogen's really, really, really light. Mm-hmm. It's the lightest element. So uh, when you're talking about getting a lot of hydrogen together, uh, before it makes a weight of any appreciable amount, that's a lot of hydrogen. So that's why you talk about it being a low energy by volume as opposed to uh, a high energy by weight. When you when you get enough for you to compare the hydrogen versus the gasoline, it you just doesn't even You would have a tank out. bigger than the car, probably. Yeah, it's, so. it's, it, that's the big issue uh, or one of the many issues, really. Uh, in, hy- in the United States, hydrogen is mostly used to refine petroleum, uh, to treat metals and also to produce fertilizer. So uh, that's the other thing is that you always have to think about how we're what we are using this stuff for currently and uh, then thinking about the added stress we would put Supply on the system. Supply and demand, sure. Yeah. Uh, and we'll talk about more of that in the, in the next episode. So this leaves us with our final alternative fuel, which is not... It's not really a fuel. Not in the sense of the others. And we've already kind of touched on it with hydrogen fuel cells, but it's electricity. And electricity is just another alternative to making your cars go. And the interesting thing here is, of course, for those of you who know your history with cars. Some of the first vehicles were electrical. Yeah. Electric cars actually predate the gasoline powered cars. Uh, But electric cars were while they were early versions of personal vehicles. They were a little limited. You were limited pretty much by the area that you could drive in, and that was mostly in cities because they had the capacity to uh, generate and distribute the electricity that you would need to to recharge your vehicle. Um, once people got it into their heads, this crazy notion of, hey, this vehicle would actually allow me to go and explore Beyond just getting from point A to point B in my city, but out of actually, your neighborhood and yeah. yeah, out somewhere. Yeah, maybe out across the wild blue yonder. Right. Yeah. I've always I've always wanted to drive from New York to you know uh, to Chicago. Then you would need something that would allow you to uh, to get further than that, or you would have to have some sort of infrastructure in place that could allow you to refuel. And that's kind of how gasoline took over. Right now. Uh, these these days, of course, there are lots of hybrid vehicles and a few all-electric vehicles. And um, we are creating more of an infrastructure around those for charging stations mm-hmm. in between, you know, so that if you don't happen to have a house once every 30 miles along your route. Right. Yeah. You can't just you know, sneakily plug in your vehicle to whatever outlet happens to be nearby. Uh, yeah, you can you can uh, support it through these official infrastructure utilities that are out there. Also, there's. Uh, there, there are other innovations like regenerative braking, where you get some. Um, so when some you, of, you save up some of the kinetic energy that you create from braking or right. from. Uh, 
And normally you would just, you would just lose that energy. The energy would normally just be converted into heat and you would lose it. Right. But with regenerative braking, you're actually capturing some of that energy that otherwise would just go into heat and you can put that back into the battery. Now, of course, there's no way to completely eliminate heat. If we could, we'd have the perfect closed system and every time we use the brakes, we would capture all of that energy and put it right back into the battery. Doesn't mean that you would even, you would never have to recharge the battery, but it would mean that you could do it. You could go for a really long time. Yeah, but turns out, you know, we can't do that. We can't curse you physics. Oh, you thermodynamics. Um, I blame Newton, really. It's his fault. Uh, if that apple had not hit his head and he had just stuck with figs, <laughs> we would have been, I think I'm mixing things up. Anyway, so, uh, so getting back into electricity, the nice thing about an electrical car is that you really have no appreciable emissions to speak of, right? You know, you do have to worry about whatever the battery is made out of, if that stuff is toxic or dangerous, and how do you dispose of that once right. you need to eventually replace it. You know, keeping in mind, you can charge and drain a battery a lot of several times, but eventually you will need to replace it. Um, so there, that's a concern. Uh, on top of that, just because your car is clean, like the, the electricity isn't producing any sort of appreciable emissions. Doesn't mean that there were no emissions, uh, created during the processing of that battery. Yeah. Or, or of the generation the, of, of the electricity that yeah. you put into that battery. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because, because how does, you know, how does power get to your house? Yeah. If you, if your power is coming from a coal powered plant, then it, the fact that your car is not emitting uh, greenhouse gases or pollutants is nice, but it's still getting its energy from a source that really is producing a lot of greenhouse gases and pollutants. So in a way, I, the way I like to say is that it kind of shifts the, 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 the burden, the responsibility to a different party, but it's all still part of this overall system. So again, if your goal because it doesn't necessarily mean that your goal to switch from one fuel to an alternative it doesn't necessarily have to be environmental but if it is environmental you have switching, to take all of this other stuff into consideration right you can't just switch to electrical and think i am now saving the world i'm absolved it all depends yeah. on how that energy is produced now if your energy is being produced by plants that are mainly using hydropower or geothermal power or solar or wind power first of all i'm amazed uh <laughs> Not so much with the hydropower. There are quite a few facilities Definitely. that use that. But, uh, but you know, if but, but you... But most people aren't off the grid enough, and, and most people, yeah, but most areas are not, in the U.S. anyway, are not using that kind of power for well, yeah, I mean, not neighborhood every, generation. Not everyone has access to the kind of stuff. Like, you know, if you're using hydropower, you've got to have access to a great amount of water that's in motion. If you happen to be in a part of the United States or the world in general that is not close to any sort of major river or tidal uh, motion or anything like that where you can harness this, then you have to find something else to create your electricity. It's not even that you're necessarily, you know, uh, uh, part of the what what some people think of as a giant conspiracy among car companies and oil companies and that sort of thing. Personally, I don't believe that that conspiracy really exists. I believe that there are a lot of, of uh, companies out there that have interests and they will lobby to have those interests protected. Oh, absolutely. But I don't think it goes so far as to let us suppress all innovation. They don't need to. 
And we'll talk about more about that in the next podcast. But, right. But at any rate, uh, so yeah, it but all. No, it's, it's a lack of availability of, um, of, of A, rare earth elements to, to help things like photovoltaics and, sure. and B, um, just, just access to the natural resources needed to, to really collect wind on a wind farm or collect right. solar energy. Exactly. Yeah. You may not be in a part of the world that is, conducive to any of that. So you have to get it somehow. So yeah, electricity is good in theory, but again, it all depends on how that electricity was generated, whether or not you are net doing a, a, a service to the environment. And again, if, if that's not your concern, if the environment isn't the reason you're switching to an alternative fuel, this is a moot discussion in the first place. Right. Because like we said, there are lots of different reasons. All right. So that is the overview. Do you have anything else about electricity you wanted to add? I think that's it. Excellent. All right. So we have covered the various alternatives that are typically talked about when we talk about alternative fuel. In our next episode, we're really going to cover why is gasoline something that we really depend on? We've touched on a lot of it already and talk about what are the big challenges to moving to a gasoline free uh, fuel system. And, uh, there are quite a few challenges, as it turns out. But we'll cover that in our next episode. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes that we should cover here on Tech Stuff, please let us know. A lot of you have been writing in and giving us some great suggestions yes, for future topics. Thank you so much for all of your all of your letters. Yeah, we really appreciate it. We've been adding to the list. And uh, trust us, that list is very important to us because it means that we don't have to sit there and invent stuff. We already know what you want to hear. Yes. And when we know what you want to hear, it makes it better for everybody. So keep that up. Let us know. Send us an email. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com. Or drop us a line on social media. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle at both of those is TechStuffHSW. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>